advice of the city of the field. You know, by another brick. Switch. Now, stretch a bit more. And just sit in balance. We get the balance. Okay, once again. Just relax a bit, move around. Okay. Okay, another breath. Hold, stretch, all the negativity, blow it So, we talked with Joel before and he was, we were just reflecting on how these kind of classes are actually quite challenging because they challenge preconceptions, they challenge the status quo of our thinking, they challenge the status quo of what we accept to be normal or real even. And that's very, very challenging. So this kind of indication, it pushes us out of our comfort zone, which is never obviously comfortable. <laughs> to get pushed out of your comfort zone is by definition uncomfortable. And we don't like that uncomfortable feeling. <clears throat> but at the same time, in order to change, to grow, to develop, <clears throat> we've got to, we have to break out of our previous conception, to break out of our previous complacency and just expand to another level, a bit like a tree. You know, we have to grow. Uh, that's another example. A bit, better. a bit like a cicada, you know how it kind of like expands and it grows out of its original shell and leaves the other one behind and has a new body. Okay. So we've got to leave behind the old self and move into the new self, but it's never particularly comfortable. So Joel was asking me, does it ever become, is it ever not uncomfortable? And it's a good question. The basic answer is no. It's never not uncomfortable. It says there are two kinds of happy people in the world. And one kind of miserable person. <clears throat> one kind of happy person is one is completely ignorant. They don't know and they don't care, they don't know that they don't care. Or they don't care that they don't know. And the other person that's completely happy is one who's fully enlightened. And everybody else in between is miserable. 
because we're in that grey zone of struggling with enlightenment. We know too much to be complacent. We don't know enough to be fully, uh, to feel fully established in a new paradigm. So it's sort of having to grow. So it's, a, it's naturally a challenging experience. On the one hand, we want to gain understanding, we want to gain transformation. On the other hand, we don't necessarily like the discomfort or the challenge that that confronts us with. Because it does, it challenges. It challenges our values, it challenges our life choices. It challenges what we will do with our life. And these choices can become quite obviously serious. Challenge the way we live. <laughs> For example, challenges even in the kind of way the food we eat, which is a major shift. Not just in, the, in, in why we eat, or what we eat, but why we eat a certain kind of way. Challenges in the way we, for example, sleep. How we go to bed, how we get up, when we go to bed, when we get up, etc. Challenges are even in terms of who we associate with. Because the most powerful factor in transformation is association. We inevitably become like the people we associate with. And the most powerful way to change ourselves is just to change the association. So, that's also challenging. You find actually as you shift and change and transform, <coughs> you acquire new associations and old associations you tend to leave behind. <coughs> There's a word in Sanskrit called Sat. It actually is connected to Sattva. Sattva is a state of Sat. Sat really means reality. It means existence, means actual truth. Though which is a fact that it's actually substantial and existing as opposed to what is asat. Asat means unreal, untrue, not actually existing, temporary. So the association of the asat has to be given up in order to advance towards the sat. So the first characteristic of a person on the spiritual path is asat sangatya. The sangaha means association. So asat sangatya, we have to give it up. And on the other hand, sat sangha, or sadhu sangha, because sadhu comes from sat. Sat, sad, sadhu. Sadhu means one who's fixed and established in sat. So sadhu sangha, association of the sadhus, is a process or a requirement for transformation. And on the other hand, the asat, Chanda, Chag, we have to give it up. So in order to associate with the Sat, we have to have to give up the Asat. Because the Sat don't hang out with the Asat. So, and vice versa. What's night for one is day for the other, and what's day for one is night for the other. Alright, so then there are many, many challenges. The spiritual path is by definition not an easy one. But also, as I said to also the child, the example is, say for example you're struggling in a snowstorm. You can hardly imagine anything more stressful, more uncomfortable, more unpleasant. Struggling in a snowstorm. But everybody knows, as tempting as it is, if you lie down in exhaustion and go to sleep, you'll never wake up. So the options are struggle and stay alive. Try to get home. Or 
give up, give in, lie down, go to sleep, and die. So we can go back to sleep, pretend it never happened, take the blue pill, versus the red pill. <laughs> Remember what it is. Or we can just continue the process of waking up, which is always going to put us in the zone of discomfort, of challenge, <coughs> of um, some degree of, of uh, confrontation. Alright, so it's not going to be a comfortable process, but we need to persevere with it, because what is the option? There's not really an option. Spiritual life is very, very simple. It comes down to facing reality. But what's the option? Except the illusion? I'll leave you with that. Anyway, what we're going to be talking about today, again, this is one of these <coughs> topics. There's two kinds of ways we can advance in knowledge. I'll just throw this in before we begin. One is called the ascending process. And the other is the descending process, Aroha Pampa, Pampa means heart. So we can ascend into knowledge or we can have knowledge descend to us. And the difference is very simple. From a base of ignorance, we can project from our experience, from our imagination, by taking advantage of different sort of modalities, hypothesis, conjecture, trial and error, scientific method, and try to reach and expand what we know. The other way to gain knowledge and understanding is by the descending process, which boils down, very simply, to education. Education is descending knowledge. So we can ascend that's technically called speculation. Well, the knowledge can descend, and that's called education. So the relative advantages, of course, or disadvantages are obvious, should be obvious, especially when it comes to a field of study or field of knowledge that is far beyond our capacity to reach. If it's a field we know nothing about and no access to, the only possibility is that we have to take recourse to receive knowledge, to the knowledge which the sent. So anyway, we naturally take advantage of education since we're children. We're taught by our parents stuff. We go to school, primary school, high school, university, and we learn, 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 learn. And that's the fastest way to become enlightened, is to learn. But of course, there's intellectual conception, and then there's direct perception. Direct perception is called bharshan, or literally seeing. Indirect perception means understanding, but conceptual, hypothetical, in terms of a mental construct. Now, even though our understanding and realization may be simply conceptual, it's the beginning. Because with that conception, we can apply ourselves in practice and then gradually we come to appreciate through direct experience what is the truth and the reality. Then it becomes seen or directly perceived knowledge called realization or darshan. See it clearly. So, 
The process of spiritual advancement is the same. The foundation of it is education. And then by putting into practice what we learn, we ourselves personally get the direct experience. So initially there will be conceptual understanding. And then there will be application of that understanding. And then there will be realization. So theory, practice, realization. So we're now going to indulge a little bit of theorizing. It's not really theory, but actually we're going to understand the idea conceptual. Alright? So these are, we're going to be discussing what are called the pancha, panchama, pulcharaka. So pancha refers to five. Ekdo, tincha, pancha, in Hindi. One, two, three, four, five. Okay, so it's very simple. <coughs> pancha means five. And purusha artha has. Artha means value, goal, outcome, thing to be achieved, objective, etc. That which has value, <coughs> that which has worth, that which is a, which we, we want to achieve. And purusha refers to a human being. Purusha literally means enjoy it. A conscious entity with an agenda to achieve something enjoyable. To achieve a positive outcome. So, we've uh, briefly summarized them as the five peaks, because there are five purusha arkas, five desirable outcomes or goals that dominate in human existence, in human civilization. So we're going to briefly look at what they are. Alright, so the first one, it's not working. How are we moving along? Anyway, I've summarized them as five peaks. Just to make it a bit more easy. So, although they all have Sanskrit names, I categorize them under five English names beginning with P. So the first one is purpose. Second one is Identity and purpose. 
Second one is ARTA, Economic Development. This is the situation where that term ARTA is used in very specific terms as economic development, in other words, materialistic uh, outcomes, productivity, resources, things we need to support our existence practically in the world. The specific meaning of ARTA, economic development. And the third one is KARMA, K-A-M-A. Not karma, K-A-R-M-A means activity. Activity is consequence. Karma literally means desire. Desire for pleasure. Desire for material enjoyment. So, Vedic culture gave deep thought to these primary concerns necessary for what we might call a successful life. Unless we have all three of these things, our life can never be said to be fully successful. So the first thing that we need to do, we need to develop, is a clear sense of identity and purpose. Sorry. I was going to make the distinction. These are the first three outcomes necessary for a successful life. Then to go on it says, <clears throat> for those who can comprehend the inevitable futility, however, of material life. When we're talking about successful life, we're just talking about life as in the here and now. But, for those who can understand the inevitable futility of material existence, there's a fourth goal that's proposed, and that's called moksha. So dharma, artha, karma, moksha. <coughs> Which means negation of the material experience. In other words, the pursuit of peace. Which we'll get into a little bit later on. We'll look at a little bit more. Sorry, what does futility mean? Futility? Yeah. Uh, means hopelessness. That yeah, well, that's not a good word. What was it? Hopeless. Futile means that it's impossible to achieve, or it's not no point achieving it because it has no meaning. <coughs> Alright? Or the attempt is destined to failure, so therefore it is futile. Now, beyond moksha, we have the fifth and final goal. Now, for those who can comprehend that spiritual limitation, the spiritual limitations of what is a simple negation of material life, moksha. Moksha means negation of the material. For those who ever can understand the spiritual limitations that that involves, because the negation of the material doesn't in and of itself apply, uh, uh, imply spiritual. Spiritual is altogether a positive experience, ideally. Simply the, op the opposite of material doesn't exactly imply spiritual. It just implies exactly that, the opposite of material. Or negation of material doesn't imply actual spiritual engagement. So beyond the objective or outcome of moksha or peace is spiritual pleasure. It's called prema. So this is the positive experience of an eternal transcendental life based on uh, the original motivating force of the soul, which is love. So now we're going to look at these things a little bit more carefully. So this is the first perfection 
All of these are perfections. And to achieve them in perfection is an ideal of the human form of life. So the first perfection, not in, well, it's a perfection, but it's also necessary. It's fundamentally important. Without this, we almost cannot go further. Unless we become very clearly established in our dharma, we can hardly proceed further. We'll see how, therefore, all these perfections become sequential. The consequent perfection depends upon having become established in the prior perfection. So, what human beings ideally require is not just a job, but a sense of vocation, a higher sense of meaning and purpose to their life. In other words, to be established in what's called their dharma. Uh, which amounts to a clear sense of identity, purpose and ultimate meaning. So, the first requirement of a sane and livable life, what to speak of the progressive one, is a clear sense of purpose. Without any overarching sense of purpose, the daily struggle for existence will soon seem frustrating and pointless. By degrees, this will lead to confusion, anxiety, depression and despair. Now, purpose stems directly from identity. They go hand in glove together. Therefore, as Socrates famously said, that our first requirement is really to know ourselves. The unexamined life is not worth living. So, as purpose is a self-evident expression of identity, when our identity is clear, our purpose will automatically stand revealed. I naturally do what I am. Therefore, when the I am is clear, then the what I do or should do will also be clear. So therefore, the search for purpose begins with the search for identity. When I am very, very clear about my identity, my purpose becomes self-evident, becomes obvious. And we think, well, that's pretty, how complicated is that? Of course I know who I am. I know what my identity is. But as great thinkers have always appreciated, the question over identity is a very, very big one. If we answer superficially, our existence consequently will also be superficial. But we can give some simple examples to illustrate. Say, for instance, it's Monday morning, we wake up from a deep sleep, and we realize What's the first thing we realize? I did it. And we remember that, for example, I'm a doctor. I am a doctor. So what does a doctor do? He doctors. I am an engineer. So I design stuff or build stuff. I am a teacher. I am Mr. So-and-so or Mrs. So-and-so or they or he or she, whatever it is. I am, <coughs> for example, I may wake up to the fact that I actually, oh, and by the way, I happen to be married. And there's another person in the house and I am their husband or their wife. Oh, and by the way, I happen to have children Oh, I, I am a father as well, for a mother. 
So being a father or a mother, what do you do? If you're a mother, you mother. If you're a father, you parent in a different way. Perhaps. Whatever. But anyway. So then if you're a mother, you think, these are better feed the kids before they go to school. So of course we see how identity can shift and change depending on circumstance. During my working day, I'm doctor so-and-so. I get treated with a lot of respect. I do doctoring stuff. When I get home at night, my wife yells at me, put out the rubbish or go and chop some wood. But she doesn't care that I'm a doctor. She just knows me as the useful pair of hands around the place to do stuff. Right? <laughs> and she might be a physiotherapist or work in the radiology department of a hospital. But when you come home, you expect that she will be the cook. She will come and prepare, prepare something. Of course, I'm getting the deep water here because we're in that zone of gender roles. <laughs> so, but you see the point. Activity stands for identity. Imagine if you're confused about your identity. You wake up, and you, for the life of you, you can't remember who you are. You don't know what your name is, your title, your responsibilities, you don't, don't know. So then, you don't know what to do. What should I do? You don't know. Now, a lot of people you know, wake up in life not knowing who they are not knowing therefore what to do. <clears throat> they have no real sense, a clear sense of purpose. Now of course, as I was talking to John before the past too, imagine if we were told or taught or trained from childhood, from five years of age, exactly who we were, exactly what this world was for, exactly what's going on, where I am, what the hell has happened. Imagine if your parents could have told you all that. Instead of having to struggle for 20 years to make sense of anything. Of course, you know, maybe they do, but not in any deep sense. You know, oh, you've got to go to school, you've got to read a book, you know, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. You know, what's the purpose of life, Mum? Ah, oh, well, you know, at a certain age you find a girl, you get married, settle down, have kids, you know, get a house and a mortgage, and then one day you retire, go to the Gold Coast, you know, take up golf and fishing. You know, I mean, that's not like nothing, it's something, but still. But it doesn't de answer those sort of deep existential questions that you have. But, Mum, where am I? Am I anywhere? Where is he? What is this place? Who are you people anyway? How come you're my mother and father? Why not the people next door? Stuff like that. So anyway, the more deeply we can answer this question, the more deeply we'll be able to understand what to do the more deeply we can develop a sense of identity, the more deeply we can become convinced about what we're doing. If we don't have a clear sense of identity, where we fit in the scheme of things, whether relatively or absolutely, we will not have a clear sense of purpose, a clear sense of what to do. And without that, there will always be doubt, hesitancy, insecurity. Should I go here? Should I go there? Should I do this? Should I do that? Should I become a this? Should I become a that? And I really not. And everybody's in your ear. Oh, what you should do, this is the classic, you know, the classic, what's the, what, you know, way to say, so many comments say, you know what you should do? You know what you should do? How many times do you hear that in life? You know what you should do? 
I hear it all the time. People come to give in the valley and they say, you know what you should do? <laughs> I think, yeah, you know, no. Heard it a thousand times. No, 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 no. You know what you should do? I think I was Anyway, you know what you should do? You should go and get yourself married. You know what you should do? You should go to uni. You know what you should do? You should take a bit of You know what you should do? You should just walk away from the door and just live a simple life. Anyway, there's so many shoulds, isn't there? So, in amongst all of that, how do you actually come to the point of having a clear sense of knowing who you really are and therefore what you really should be doing? And because of that, because we're not actually connected with ourselves, because what we're doing, how we're engaged, is not actually reflecting who we really are, we can never be, we can never be content and satisfied and convinced about ourselves. We can never have actual conviction. <clears throat> so this is fundamentally important. Now it's understood in advanced or reformed cultures and civilizations. This is fundamental. Without this, without this is square one. This is the foundation. Without this, we're not moving any further forward. So the conception of identity and purpose can be understood both relatively in terms of the current world we're living in. Or it can be understood in deeper and more absolute terms in, in, in respect of our actual identity or existence on the spiritual level. The principle is exactly the same. We have an identity psychophysically relative to this material body and this material world. We have a deeper identity based upon our eternal nature, our eternal existence as spiritual living entities. Both identities have to be worked out. In order to be happy and satisfied and fulfilled in our external material engagement, we have to have Dharma work out in terms of this current situation. In order to be happy and deeply connected with our spiritual identity and purpose, we have to delve much more deeply into what that really is and become uh, and, and uh, have our existence currently reflect that, become congruent with that, that deeper sense of identity and deeper sense of purpose to our existence. Does that make sense? Probably doesn't. <coughs> Two things. Identity and purpose on the, in the current circumstance. Identity and purpose on the spiritual level. In other words, our eternal identity and our current identity. One is called our Dharma, in terms of the here and now. The other is called Sanatana Dharma. Our Dharma in terms of our spiritual identity and purpose. Both things have to be understood comprehensively. To live happily and progressively and productively in this world, we have to understand our Dharma. To have a meaningful existence in terms of our actual identity, beyond this material world, we have to connect with that understanding of ourselves and understand clearly what the purpose is of from that understanding. So this is the, the world of dharma. It's the foundation of everything else. Without having our dharma sorted out, we cannot sort out anything else. Alright? So we're going to move on. This is artha. The second perfection, prosperity. And we think I thought we weren't meant to be materialistic. Not exactly. Sorry, just before we move on, um, how do you find your dharma? Oh, we'll get to the end of that. We'll go back to that. <laughs> now, a proper engagement in Dharma should automatically, this is a very important result, in a certain level of artha. Artha meaning economic development or prosperity. 
In other words, the resources that we need to support ourselves. Keep in mind, when we properly engage in Koikara Dharma, that's how we're contributing to society. We're contributing to the social body as a whole. And, naturally and appropriately, that should be reciprocated by, in terms of the support mechanisms. In other words, when I, like, well, mundane examples, when I go to work, I work, I work hard, I get paid. So you're contributing, and you get rewarded for the contribution that you make. I'm a teacher, I educate people, I get recognised and rewarded for that. So if we are engaged appropriately according to our dharma, not only will we be happy and satisfied because we're doing what we're good at and naturally suited for, but we should get reciprocated appropriately by society and we get supported. So therefore such prosperity should be sufficient to support ourselves and our families at a reasonable level of material comfort and pleasure. Not just comfort in terms of need, but even pleasure. We should be able to have enough to enjoy something into your life, to be comfortable. Not just always struggling, desperate, anxious, paying the bills, you know, having enough petrol in the car, being able to do even basic things with, with some security. No, we should be secure and have enough on top of that to be comfortable. <coughs> so greed, however, or excess, that's never approved. But sufficient facility for our legitimate purposes should be within everyone's reach. We should all be able to be without material anxiety. Life should not be a great struggle with a lot of associated stress and insecurity. <coughs> Purpose without facility, this is one of the reasons why it's unfair not to properly support or provide resources for people because without necessary facility commensurate to our purpose then it would be very very hard to achieve our purpose like say for instance by your dharma you're an artist but unless you're supported how can you pursue your art? so not only will you be frustrated at an individual level but you won't be able to contribute the value that you have to offer to the society as a whole you won't be able to contribute it effectively because although you're an artist, you may have tremendous talent and ability that would clearly uplift and inspire the, the community or the society, you're going to have to go you know, work as a champion or something. Work on a building or something, whatever. You know what I mean? So you're not really doing even what you're naturally suited for or happy doing. Your value is not being recognised and being undertaken advantage of. All why? Because you're economically stressed. But actually you should be looked after. You should have sufficient, so you can do what you're naturally suited for doing without anxiety. That way you're, you're going to become the happiest you can be, the most fulfilled you can be, and you're going to bring out the best of yourself to contribute the best of what you can to the society as a whole. Right? <clears throat> so, purpose without facility, necessary for its achievement, leaves us frustrated and defeated. Nevertheless, in general, we must never make prosperity our primary goal or allow it to serve as an end in itself. It must serve our purpose, in other words, our dharma, without becoming our purpose. In other words, the, the economy, the um, prosperity should be a means to an end, not an end in itself. Now, as the purpose of individuals vary, so our individual economic needs will also vary. 
not actually everybody needs the same amount of money to pursue their dharma, the same level of prosperity. Some dharmas require more, some require less. The critical thing is that when we're doing our dharma happily, we'll be most productive and most fulfilled on an individual level and most valuable so far as the community as a whole is concerned. To give you a rough example, the king will always need more money than the ploughman. The king needs a lot of money because to fulfil his dharma as a ruler, he might need a lot of resources to distribute throughout the, the society, to create the ways and means of structuring and organising society, to protect society, etc, etc, etc. So, it's not a one-size-fits-all kind of formula. The critical thing is no one should be in anxiety. Now, in a materialistic society, what is a materialistic society? It's one where prosperity or profit is seen as an end in itself. In such a society, everyone's purpose may become subordinated to sheer productivity or economic gain, either in desperate struggle to survive or in feverish anticipation of lavish enjoyment. Yes, I want a big house, I want three cars, I want to get a boat too, I want to go to Bali, I want to do this, I want to do that. Everybody's doing it, I want to do it too. And we all get anxious, we're missing out, we get feverish. Or we're just struggling to make ends meet. We just hard, find it hard just to survive. So, society as a whole should be structured so that everyone's economic requirements can be easily met according to need, not to greed, allowing people to happily proceed in executing their various genuine purposes or their dharma without anxiety and frustration. Alright, so prosperity is critical. Without prosperity we cannot be happy. Because without sufficient resources we cannot even execute our dharma. And be the best that we can be. Contribute the maximum we can to the good of society as a whole. Alright? <clears throat> the next outcome, the next perfection, is called karma, or fulfillment of material desire for enjoyment. And we think, well, how can that be legitimate? Well, we're not meant to be doing this stuff. So, following on from economic development, is of course, without resources, how can you enjoy it? What's the purpose of being rich? So you can get stuff and enjoy it. And if you're poor, like I said, poor people have poor options. You don't have much. You, you can't enjoy very much. You can't enjoy very well. So the purpose of economic development is to facilitate not just maintenance, not just what we need in order to live and to be you know, reasonably sufficient, but we need in order to enjoy, to have some degree of pleasure, some degree of enjoyment. And there's plenty of enjoyments that are not, not, not illegitimate or illicit, cultural uh, activities, uh, social activities. There are many, many things that we can do that are very uplifting, that are very inspiring, that are very beneficial to us, all under the general heading of enjoyment and pleasure. Anyway, so this is not considered, the pursuit of pleasure is considered not just a legitimate or valid outcome of life, but one that forms its basic motivational content. Indeed, according to the Sanskrit aphorism, Omananamoyabhyasha, it is the eternal nature of the living being to be pleasure seeking. You can ask yourself broadly the question, this came up this morning, 
Why is it we all want the same thing? We all want to be happy. Why? I mean, where does this idea come from? If we're just a bunch of molecules, where did they get the idea that we just want to be happy and avoid suffering or avoid the stress? Every living entity, from the animals, the birds, human beings, everybody, they're all striving desperately to become happy. Why? Feels good. Yeah. Well, why is it good? It feels good. Yeah, but why does it feel good? Where does this idea come from? Huh? Dopamine and serotonin and oxytocin. We like striving to get more of it. Yeah, that's what scientists would say. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> the Vedic wisdom suggests that the reason we all want to become happy is because it's in the very nature of the soul to be happy. It's in the very nature of the living being to be happy. And under Moivashat means that by nature we pleasure seeking. Anyway. The point is that we all want to be happy. And the way to become happy, generally speaking, is to experience pleasure. And the way to experience pleasure is to get results and say, you're in pleasurable experiences or activities or things. So, and this is not simply a reasonable thing. It is reflective of the fundamental driving force within each one of us. It's not something that we can ever deny or just artificially, you know, try to... Um, try to nullify or transcend. It's something fundamental to our very existence and very being. Of course, as it says here, pleasure can be experienced in different dimensions, different levels. Physical pleasure is an obvious one. We can also experience pleasure on the emotional platform or on the intellectual or even spiritual platform. For example, do, you know, do we, has anybody ever experienced intellectual pleasure? What would be an example of that? Yeah. A lot of people are just absorbed in intellectual pleasure. That's the, that's the stuff of their life for them. You know, academics, intellectuals, professors, they just love that stuff. And they can be quite dry emotionally, conversely as well, because they're not giving much attention to that. And, and of course, pleasure emotionally, we're all very familiar with. You know, it's when we feel good, you know, when we have it, especially in relationships. Physical pleasure goes without saying. Eat stuff, feel stuff, put the heater on. Physical pleasure. And then we have spiritual pleasure, by the same token, that's the actual pleasure of the soul itself. So anyway, all these raise the question of what pleasure really is, and how it can be best experienced. Now, the Vedic civilization judges, however, that all material pleasures, in other words, pleasures based upon the material body, which includes the mind, it is subtle material, it's subject to limitations in two ways. All material pleasure is limited in extent and duration. The pleasure is not unlimited and doesn't last forever. It's limited in extent and limited in time. In fact, the, the pleasure we experience through the material body always obeys the law of diminishing return. Like when you first eat something, it's very pleasurable. You keep eating it after a while, the pleasure diminishes. When you first smell a rose, it's very powerful. You keep smelling, the, the smelling power goes away, it diminishes. We work hard, we're a bit enthusiastic, we revel in the, in the feeling of the body, we get tired and exhausted, and we can't do it anymore. Even sex pleasure. 
Once you've had it, you've had it, exhausted, can't do it anymore. You know, you really want that kind of thing in a big, big way, become a pigeon. Or a monkey. <laughs> That's what these bodies are for. Fifty times a day, no problem. <laughs> you see, but even though we want to enjoy our limitedly, we can't. The facility is restricted. This much, no more. <clears throat> and on the other hand, it also, everything has a beginning and an end in the material world. You know, we were young, we loved to play, run around, jump, play footy, play sport, do this, and that body's gone. And now we've got then a youthful body, we're chasing the girls when we get married, have a family. Body's gone. We want to have kids, want to have kids, had the kids, body's gone. Moving along, places, enjoyments, it shifts and changes. But whatever it is, it's the beginning and the experience and it comes to the end, move along. So this is the law of material nature, the law that governs the material experience. This being the case, therefore, all material pleasure being both limited and temporary, the spiritual wisdom encourages, therefore, to seek pleasure beyond the limitations of the material plane, of the material mind and body. So by cultivating higher spiritual experience, we can, in fact, give up the lower taste of material life. This aspiration informs the ambition of a spiritually progressive society. Now these three aims or outcomes or goals are understood to be relative to the material experience. There are three. There are artha and karma. These are the three variables, the three paths of material success. And we need to cultivate all of them to have a happy and successful material life. <clears throat> the point is, material experience must inevitably lead to disillusionment, or it should. If we don't become disillusioned by material experience, there's something wrong. We're not thinking deeply enough. Just from a spiritual perspective. Because, oh, I have to just like that. Prejudice. Judgment. No, it's not really the point. If we don't become exhausted and frustrated with material life, we're just not thinking deeply enough. We're not just not seeing the writing on the wall. And even common people say, you can't take it with you. You can't take it with you. you know, what's the point of getting rich? You can't take it with you. Everybody knows. It's not something you know, that's a revelation. It's only common sense that all material things including pleasure, have a beginning and an end. Therefore, as much as we may be enthusiastic about pursuing material happiness, experience tells us that frustration and heartache must ultimately follow. In fact, material experience is based on the dual phenomenon of what's called itchdosha, attachment and aversion. It ends up becoming experienced emotion is hankering and lamenting. The two sides of the coin of anxiety. There's two things. Hankering for what we don't have, lamenting for what we've lost. Hankering for what's still to come, lamenting for what's gone. It's actually a good abstract question to ask yourself this. Is there actually a particular point when I'm actually enjoying? Because it's either getting better or getting worse. I mean, it's either, it's either coming or gone. It's just now coming, 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 gone. What's the point where we're actually completely in the moment, fully happy, fully realised, and even if it was, it makes me in shifts. So therefore we exist in a zone of prospective 
cosseno por hash cosseno. This one, the chair experience is said to be two sides of the same coin, hankering and lamenting. And what is that coin? It's the coin of anxiety, stress, insecurity, anxiousness. And the bigger the hankering and lamenting, the bigger the coin. So therefore, common wisdom is reduce your hankering and lamenting, reduce your stress and anxiety, just relax. For heaven's sake, just relax. It doesn't matter that much. It's not that important. Enjoyment will come, problems will come, and they will go. Relax. No, 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 no. So it's coming out. No, 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 I need it, I need it, I want it. And then when we get it, we get it, we get it, and then somehow another so in this way. <coughs> Material experience is in the zone of anxiety. Therefore, Lord Buddha famously said, uh, actually, we may not be overtly conscious of the fact, because we're not like the world. The fact of the matter is we're not very conscious, by and large. So we don't know this, we're not observing it, we're not like overtly aware of it. But anxiety or stress is actually the default condition of material existence. People want, oh, I'm so stressed, I'm so anxious. Well, welcome to the world. It's basically the way things are. Now, unless you can develop the psychology or the, the kind of tools to deal with that. Basically, this is the world. It's just stressful. Everything is stressful. Everything is, you know, it, it generates anxiety. It generates insecurity. It generates fear. It generates hankering. It generates lamenting. It's just the way things are. So if you want to reduce that experience, which is what this moksha is all about, becoming peaceful, we have to pay attention to this. So beyond the tree varga, oh here, so Lord Buddha, in his famous dictum, Sarvam Hidukam, Sarva means everything, all together. He certainly, Dukam, miserable, suffering. Sarvam Hidukam, this world is nothing but misery. That's Lord Buddha's fundamental premise. That's the basis of his whole worldview. Okay? A kind of grim way or a bit of a pessimistic way to, to kick off. But that's Buddhism. You know, welcome to Buddhism, if that's, you know, your way. Buddhism thinks like this. Sarvabhin come. Therefore, <laughs> he, he said, therefore, beyond the tree varga, the three gods we've been considering and materialized, Vedic teachings therefore encourage pursuit of the fourth and higher goal, moksha, or freedom from material existence, or more specifically material anxiety. In other words, superior to the agitation, the frustration, other than disappointment of material life is spiritual liberation, which leads to the peace that passes all understanding, which is even the Bible eulogizes. We may finally arrive at this anti-material state of moksha or peace through a systematic reduction in material attachments. And this is basically the spiritual path of moksha, or liberation from the material. A systematic reduction of material involvement or attachment. It's called Nivriti Mara. The material path is called Pravriti Mara. Mara means heart. Pravriti means increase. Increase, 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 increase. There's a means to happiness. The Nivriti Mara towards Moksha means decrease. Decreasing involvement, decreasing attachment, decreasing and material entanglements. So the systematic reduction 
of material entanglements, material attachments, is actually the, the, uh, the general path of spiritual development to achieve this state of peace. You know, the Buddhist monk sitting on the mountain, so peaceful, so calm, so quiet, equipoised, neutral, not anxious, content, peaceful. This is moksha. This is called the Trakrakaka, or the fourth goal. So after we've tried, given the material world our best shot, done everything, tried everything, beyond that, what is beyond that? Moksha. It's called the highest goal, materially speaking. So then you go ask yourself the question, okay, sounds pretty good, is there anything better? Is there a goal beyond moksha? Or peace? <coughs> so higher than these four outcomes of human endeavour, which are three material goals, they want anti-material, which in a kind of counterintuitive way is still a material. Because it's calculated and predicated on the conception of the material. For something to be anti-something is still connected to the same thing. So the three material goals, the anti-material goal is fundamentally still a material outcome because its value and significance, its viability, is predicated on the understanding of what is material. So you're defining it by the opposite of material, which still makes it a definition by negation of the material. So the reduction of the material to zero is not technically and not practically a spiritual outcome. It is an anti-material outcome. It's like being sick. You've got a big fever. You reduce the fever to zero. So now you're not sick anymore. But that doesn't that doesn't imply positive good health. Like if you're sick and big, you've got a fever and you reduce the fever. Okay, the fever's zero. But that's not positive good health. That's not like the, the, the genuine opposite of being sick. The genuine opposite of being sick is not no longer sick. It's being healthy. See? So the, the idea or the ideal of peace it's not a positive proposal. It's simply a reduction of the fever of our material disease. But it doesn't involve a positive proposal in terms of a genuine alternative. For that, we have to come to the spiritual platform. So therefore, there's a fifth and final goal, and that's called prema, or spiritual love. <coughs> prema for Mark Dolmahan. This <coughs> quote supports the idea, because <coughs> this is the Arthaha Maham. From Arthaho Maham. Maham means great. As in Mahatmaham, great. Mahatma, Mahatma, great soul. Maham, great. Alright. Arthamaham. This is the great and final goal. Prema. Prema from Maham. An attainment beyond even moksha, which is merely freedom from material suffering. So the Vedas describe the soul. The debaters describe the soul in this way. These are the ingredients and characteristics of the soul. Sat means without beginning or end. Chit, fully conscious, aware of everything, knowing everything. Ananda, pleasure seeking, blissful by nature, happy, blissful by nature. And Vigraha, in full possession of a spiritual form. 
So beyond mere escape from material suffering, therefore, ultimate spiritual perfection is said to involve a reawakening of these natural attributes and characteristics of the soul, which is altogether a positive, meaningful, <coughs> um, valid, significant experience. The original motivational content of the soul is described as prema. The content of the soul is basically three. Subjective, objective and active. Therefore we have three yoga systems. Bhakti, the subjective, the rest of the subjective content of the soul. Jnana, knowledge, the rest of the objective content of the soul. And karma yoga, addresses the active content of the soul. Anyway, that's another topic, we don't have time to get into it. So the subjective <coughs> content of the soul, which is, the, which is the, the motivational force, our feelings, our desires, our wants, our wishes, what drives the agenda, the motivational force. From, from that we get, from the emotion comes motion. The emotion generates the motion. Alright? So, the driving force of the soul is love. The desire to experience it and to communicate, to give and to, to receive, love. This is the driving force of the soul. So, this quality of being able to give and receive love, in material life, this prana, this original quality of the soul becomes perverted and twisted into lust, which means self-interested endeavour for personal enjoyment and material sense gratification. And it's called karma. The prana becomes transformed into karma, which we were discussing before. <clears throat> so, this becomes pervertedly reflected in the vain pursuit of self-interest of material pleasure. By yoga practices of purification, called Sudha Chitta, Chitta means consciousness, and Sudha means to become purified. Purifying consciousness, then the original devotional nature of the soul is brought back to life, and its full potential realized. Success in this endeavour is considered the fifth and final perfection of life. Prana. This is actually a spiritual outcome. So these are the five P's. Purpose, prosperity, peace, no, 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 sorry, pleasure, then peace, and then prana. Intense. It's exhausting. Challenging. Alright, anyway, you can remember these five peaks. Purpose. Dharma. Prosperity. Alpha, economic development. Pleasure. Calm. Material enjoyment. Then frustration. Then moksha. Peace. Beyond moksha, prema. The natural proclivity and activity of the soul motivated by love. Genuine love. So, again, the five perfections of life. Identity and purpose. Economic development, material pleasure, peace, and then love. Pure unalloyed love. Okay? All clear? Clear as mud.
So getting back to <coughs> Stella's question. So the first requirement of goal of life, understanding our personal dharma. Big question is how? And these are the factors to consider. Trying to work yourself out. These are all the layers of identity. But ultimately they're all admixtures of the material modes of nature which Rome's been discussing. The modes of nature being sattva, rajas and tamas. They can be generally, generally translated as goodness, passion and ignorance or as balanced, active and inert. They create variations in respect of all these categorizations. The physical. Everyone has different size and shape. This very, very much prescribes our dharma in a very powerful way. Our age. Dharma is age-specific. The dharma of a child is quite different than the dharma of an adult and quite different to the Dharma of an old person. Dharma is not set in stone. We have, well, there's certain variables and certain things that are fairly constant. Like even if we change ages, that will be a variable. But we'll still be the same person. Just the young version, the middle-aged version, the old version. Okay? <coughs> then there's gender. Now that's a huge one. Because we're either going to be one or two sexes. And we're either going to therefore have the dharma of a woman or the dharma of a man. And we discussed this before in the early class last week. <laughs> if you happen to have the body of a woman, by your dharmic nature, in terms of the physicality, you're going to have a womb. And the womb will be the source of shelter for the child that gets impregnated and you grow that. That's unique. I can't do it. It wouldn't even matter if I had the desire to do it. That's irrelevant. Even if I had the desire, which I don't. But then again, even many women don't, but still, whether you have it or not, that's what happens, generally speaking. So that's part of your physical dharma. That's just an obvious example. Alright? But for example, someone can be, in terms of their physicality, we have natural ability, strengths and weakness. Like some are big and tall and strong. And some are kind of like, you know, short and slight and a little bit weak. So, you know, like when you look at people working in their normal occupation of Asians, like we had, the, I don't know if you remember, we had these guys come and chopping the trees now. Right? The, the tree lopping crew, all these big Maori guys. Oh, tribal. Big, kind of Maori islands, you know, Samoans. They're like six foot through, two or three legs, like tree trunks. Big guys, chains of right? I mean, so the kind of body we have is a big, big factor in our dharma, physically, even. So we have to analyze that. The other thing is, uh, another factor is culture, cultural factors, ethnicity. It's a fact that ethnically everybody is different. Well, I should have prefaced this, and this is a bit of a takeoff. We take it as a self-evident truth that, materially speaking, all men are created unequal. The American Declaration of Independence, it gives, it gives a preamble. 
we take it as a self-evident truth that all men are created equal, as a premise that is completely unworkable. The person who wrote that, Thomas Jefferson, he was a slave owner. He had a big plantation. He had a number of illegitimate children by his female slaves. So even in writing this and putting this forward, he himself was hardly the epitome of equality for all. So, but we're talking material. Spiritually, everyone's equal. It doesn't matter what body we have. Could be male, could be female, could be tree, could be animal, could be human. The soul is the same in all bodies. But materially, the principle is different. Recognizing the difference is fundamental to the question of Dharma. Um, does changing a physical body affect your Dharma? So, like, you, you grow inside, like you put on muscle, or like you lose weight? Yeah, that's, that's a very good question. Because Dharma is a psychophysical makeup, generally speaking, but if you change your physicality, you'll, you'll change your psychology. And if you change your psychology, you change your physicality. They work hand in glove together. In fact, one of the techniques, astrologically speaking, say for instance you have a weak Mars in your chart. Mars gives you strength, especially aggressive strength, especially upper body strength. But Mars rules the chest, upper chest, and the arms. So when you pump iron, get yourself all built up, you increase the power of Mars in your chart. You increase the power of that planet in your, in your psychophysical makeup and in the world and the way you operate. Because when people get all pumped up, they get self-confident and they get a bit more aggressive because they're on steroids. <laughs> you know, whatever. So you change your dharma fundamentally. It doesn't just affect your body, it affects your consciousness. So do we come here with a specific dharma? Definitely. We have, a, we have a fundamental dharma like your DNA. Can't, you know, like I said, there's things you can change and adjust. Certain things are pretty fixed. So we we come with your problems. I'm not sure I understand your question. So dharma was like purpose? Yeah, well from your identity, then your purpose is is naturally understood. In other words, from who you are, what your makeup is, what's natural and appropriate for you to do, will be naturally suggested. Alright? So, anyway, culturally, there's differences. Ethnicity, language, traditions, tribe, family, community. We all speak different languages and we come from different backgrounds. Like, I come from a Dutch family. Uh, when I grew up, I was pretty, we were pretty unique in our town, maybe 10,000 people, but maybe only three or four Dutch families. And we were different. We were just different. You know, we talked, my parents talked funny. We had different cultural values. You know, what we did on a Sunday would be different, somebody else. So, other things are things like phys psychological emotion. See, we could be passive or aggressive by nature. We could be outward, like a sportsman, like an athlete, or we could be inward, like a student, a philosopher, or a scholar. We could be uh, loud, self-confident, loud, full of that, you know, like, or we could be quiet. The person sits in the corner and they're saying, I'm very quiet and shy. Could be like that. We could be reflective, in other words, thoughtful, or we could just be busy all the time without thinking. What happens when you're kind of like on the fence with some of those characteristics? Like sometimes you like being inward, but other times you're. Yeah, you're a mixture. I didn't say it was that simple. It's complicated because it's a mixture. 
That's why finding a Dharma is such a challenge. We'll get into a little bit later how to find a Dharma. But just, these are some of the factors involved in your Dharma. Some of the things that make us up, make us who we are. So, uh, we could be intellectual or we could be practical. Like, you know, a carpenter or an academic. And we could be ambitious, like we really are going to We want to achieve a lot. I want to become rich. I want to become famous. I want to become something. I want to become prime minister. Or we can just be content. I don't care. I'm happy. I don't care. Socioeconomic political factors. We could be rich. We could be poor. We could be educated. We might be ignorant. We could be upper, middle or lower class. We could be an educator, a manager, a producer or a worker. Which reflects the five fundamental divisions of human society. Brahmanas, Tapris, Vaisas and Sutras according to the modes of mature nature. So these are some of the examples of the factors. Now how do you work out what exactly you are yourself? These are the basic processes. Discovering our Dharma. In Vedic culture, as soon as a child is born, they do the astrological chart. Because that will reveal an enormous amount regarding the Dharma. The second thing they do is they very, very closely observe the child. From child, from babyhood, you observe the child. You're not just one size fits all. You think very carefully. Like there's a ceremony you do <coughs> called uh, at one year of age. Um, it's called Munda. And basically what you do, it's also the time that the, the baby gets his head shaved. Right, which is very good, especially for the girls, because after that their hair grows very strong, luxurious. So at one year you shave the baby's head, and there's a big ceremony, the fire sacrifice, in the front of the deeds in the temple. And the child is offered various articles. A pile of money, the Shastra, the sacred books, for example. It's offered different things. And you, you see which the child goes for. You know, they either go to the money or they go to the book. And now this is taken seriously, because these are sort of spontaneous things. I've been through the process even with my own daughter. Anyway, that was rather actually, and, and she ignored all of them and went to the fire and picked up an orange. <laughs> no, that Maybe she's going to be a priestess or something, we thought at the time. Anyway, so. You observe the child very carefully. You see what its nature is. Is it aggressive? Is it quiet? Is it shy? Is it active? Busy all the time? Very curious? Or maybe passive? Does it share its toys or not? No, 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 it's mine. That sort of thing. So can you change your dharma and it can be decade? You can, you basically don't change your dharma. Your basic dharma is your basic dharma. You can improve it, you can modify it within reason, but you can't change. Just like when you change your body, you can, you can modify it, but you couldn't change it completely without giving it up. You're basically, whatever the body you have now, you're stuck with it. That's it. And then, you know, like people do radical stuff to try to change it, you can change it a little bit, you can, you can make it the best you can, you can be, you can be as healthy as you can, you can be as good as you can, you can be the best you can be, but you can't change what you are. You know, we're blonde, we're black, we're short, we're big, right? we're a little softy or a little hard, whatever it is, 
You know, we've got to meant, like even getting on to one of the other things we do is Ayurvedic analysis. We've been talking a little bit about that in the other workshops. But you can analyze your psych, not just your physiology, physiology, but your psychology. For example, you physiologically you could have a castle body, but mentally you're Peter. So you've got a kind of calm, ground, pretty strong, resilient body, but you're pretty fiery. That could be there as well. So we analyze the psychology according to the principles of Ayurveda. We analyze the physiology. This is a clue. Of course, people do psychological assessments all the time. That's an important factor in vocational training and things like that. And the other thing, of course, is education. We have to see how children respond to education. Are they bored? Are they interested? What are they interested in? How do they respond in that in a different context? So you're always observing, observing, observing. Now, in Vedic culture, the basic program for education is not the modern system. It is shoving through the system. You know, in one out, and one in out the other, all the same, like cookie cutters. You see very, very carefully. The only person that spends their whole life in education are the intellectuals, the Brahminical class, but are naturally students and naturally kind of highly intelligent and insightful. There's no point forcing everybody to try to be like that. It's going to make them very stressed and miserable and unproductive. So therefore, but as I'm saying, the basic principle they have is apprenticeship. The basic way you learn is apprenticeship. It's never just uh, rote learning or instructional conceptual learning. Up to a certain point, you've got to learn to read and write, things like that. But we see. And then according to your propensity and ability, you're given to someone to train. So it's apprenticeship. So the Brahmas are trained by the Brahmas, the Chattis are trained by the Chattis, the Vaisas are trained by the Vaisas, the Sudhas are trained by the Sudhas. Okay. Alright? So in order, in order to understand our Dharma, these are the different things we can do to analyze and consider and reflect. Parents are involved, elders are involved, the Guru is involved, teachers are involved, everybody's involved. It takes a village to raise a child. And it's done very, very carefully and selectively. No one's forced against their will and natural inclination to be something they're not suited to be. That's a terrible uh, cruelty. That's ahimsa. I mean, that's ahimsa, really. That's cruelty or harm to others. You have to be very compassionate, very thoughtful and mindful. So human civilization requires us to accept, respect and support the natural differences within the world based on a broader vision of life's purpose. With the one who has more of something supports the one who has less of something, and with a view to the overall and ultimate good. To artificially insist that there is no difference, and to force society along the paths of a strained notion of oneness, especially in a superficial reaction to perceived injustice, will only succeed in complicating the situation further while doing little to alleviate any real concern. Alright, that's our end of our presentation, so food for thought. Alright. Uh, is there time up? More or less. Okay, so maybe we can stand up and uh, chill out a little bit. Wake up a bit. Because as Frank says, what we have to do now is absorb what we've learned, what we've been, not that we've learned it, but we've been exposed to the possibility of learning it. <coughs> Alright, so balance, stance. Relax. Try to get as even as you can. <laughs> Work your way into the ground. Become rooted into the earth.
会先走。今天你看会先走的位，那一天会摔一个。So you ran. Now, relax. Now reach up. Right. Stretch. Ah. Relax. Into the center. Actually, it should be two halves. The upper half, the lower half. When I root it into the ground, the upper half reaches into the sky. Balances here. Again. Stretch. Look at that, relax. Try to seek the balance. What is the balance? In the center here. Okay, breath in. Okay, that's a cleansing breath. Alright, so all the frustration, the stress, the negativity, insecurities, fears, doubts, reluctances. Breathe in. Expect to be challenged. This is all. None of this is easy. It's, it's mentally challenging. It's emotionally challenging. But this is what forces us to grow and develop. They're pushed out of our comfort zone. Preconceptions, status quo thinking, etc. Right? Okay. See you soon. Thank you.